I actually thought that I would be Bobby Kennedy, a female Bobby Kennedy. The idea that I can do something to change my circumstances has always guided me. I'm quite fascinated by hair, up styles and <laughs> pins and curls. Fusions tend to police hair. If you are black, you're expected to have your hair like this. Mm. What is the biggest gift you can give anyone? It's time and listening and being with them. I am Bulelani Mufaito. I'm Jackie. This is the story of a meeting between two people from different hemispheres. Bulalani is an asylum seeker from South Africa and Jack is an assistant professor in political science at Trinity College Dublin. They have been paired because they have something in common. In this conversation, they try to discover what it is. My name is Michelle Darcy. I'm an assistant professor in politics at Trinity. Welcome to the podcast, Common Threads, where we ask two people who have never met before to answer the question, what do we have in common? And in so doing, discover the common threads running through both their lives. I met Bulalani through Neve, who supervised my PhD. When I told her I was making this podcast, she put me in touch with her former master's student, Bulalani. From there, it wasn't difficult to find someone to pair him with. I knew he had something in common with my colleague in the next door office, Jack. But as the conversation unfolded, this began to feel like a trivial reason, and they had far more in common at a fundamental level than I could have imagined. As Jack said at the end of the conversation. Well, I think we're both fighters. We're kind of slightly both, to say the least, anti-system people. I think we both feel passionate about what's right and wrong. When I listened back to the conversation with this in mind, I could see this how, in essence, they were similar kinds of people who, as Bulalani said, act on the belief that you can always do something to change your circumstances, and that this was in them right from the beginning, as they described in how they grew up. Uh, so, Jackie, um, we're going to talk about your childhood a bit. Um, um, I would like to, for you to describe to me where it is that you grew up. Well, I grew up in two places. I was born in London. And my mum and dad were uh, migrants, because that's what people did in the 50s, 40s and 50s in Ireland. So my mum and dad um, uh, went to London for work, and so I was born there, and I stayed there till I was six. And then I came home, and uh, my dad was a hairdresser. And uh, he um, went into business with his sister and before long, all of the money that they had for their home was lost in sort of just bad business things that happened. And so I grew up like a wild child on a farm in North County Dublin, the second house on a farm which we rented. And I was as cracked and crazy as any kid could be in the wild. So it was it was like, you know, playing in the fields, jumping into cow claps and generally being, it was just a completely very natural. Uh, so, you know, two teacher, um, small school. Um, so that's that's kind of where I where I started. What was the experience like in a small school? Like I grew up in a small, I went to a small school, but we had a one classroom. Yeah. It was a it was shared by four different we, grades. We, we two, yeah. What you had in the Irish situation was two rooms. 
and there was, uh, it, you know, it was the two teacher situation. So there was a, a woman who would take the in junior infants and then the male teacher would take the um, group who would go from about third class. Um, the experience wasn't so hot. I mean, violence was a key part of, of uh, my, uh, you know, young education. Mr. Who Shall Be Nameless, his, uh, he used to come into the schoolyard in the morning and he would take a blackthorn um, stick and he'd pare it down and he'd swing it about a bit, you know, sort of quite, you know, so so that you'd know that if you stepped out of line, you were going oh, to, correct. you were going to, yeah. So it was, oh, look, it was, it wasn't good. I mean, I remember once peeing my pants because I couldn't, I just forgot the Hail Mary, you know. Um, but that would not be an unusual experience of school. But, you know, I, I actually loved, once I got out of it, I loved it. Told my mother I went home one day and I said I'm 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 gone. There's free education in this country now. I want to go to and I named oh, no, the, the school I wanted yeah. to go to. You know. Yeah. Right, it was it was it was it was awful. But I was the only one. You know. Um, and do you have any siblings? Um, yes, I do. I am the eldest, so I have two sisters and one brother. Yeah. And what did they were also born in London? Or they yeah, they all the ki all of us were born there. But my 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 youngest sister uh, Nikki was brought home, sort of in 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 my mother's arms. Uh, I I was the eldest, so um, I was about six at the time, and she was a little uh, tiddly baby, you know. Besides running after uh, cows, <laughs> did you? What was your favorite uh, childhood game? Um, generally being uh, sort of in charge of something. So we used to play, one thing we used to do was, there used to be a programme on the telly called um, F Troop. And um, the hierarchy was, there was, let me think now, there was a lieutenant, I liked the sound of that. There was a sergeant, <laughs> a lieutenant in the American you know, tradition. So there was a lieutenant, there was a sergeant, there was a corporal and there was a dog. And the dog was called Rin Tin Tin or something like that. So um, I was the lieutenant, my sister Trish was the sergeant, my brother was the corporal and unfortunately my little sister was the dog. <laughs> And and I didn't think there was anything wrong. I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. But they did because they. Could she bark well? <laughs> she was made bark, yeah. And um, <laughs> so we that was that was kind of quite a good game. And we got oh. a lot of crack out. Well, I got a lot of crack out of that. Oh. <laughs> oh, you you already said that you you liked when you moved from the school. You said you enjoyed. Oh, it. I but loved. Did you it. enjoy the new school? Yeah, yeah. I went. Um, I was. I was at when I finally got the courage to say I've had it. I was in sixth class at that stage, and the reason I'd had it was the the teacher, the male teacher, actually punched uh, one of the male students so badly that he went through the door in the school. And I said I've had it up to my eyeballs in my own head, and I knew. Uh, 1967, 68 in Ireland was when free education came in at secondary level. <clears throat> So I, I knew that there was a really good school run by the Dominicans in Eccles Street and I knew that there was a bus to it. Uh -huh. So I had done my pre-planning <laughs> and uh, so it's that was, and, and, I, and once I got there, I, I just loved it, you know. Yeah. Mm. And what did you want to be when you were growing up? Oh, my, I, I, I was completely a television baby. So I'd seen um, a lot of courtroom dramas and I'd seen a lot of American politics. And I actually thought that I would be Bobby Kennedy, a female Bobby Kennedy was what I thought. Because <laughs> I liked the sort of the idea of, uh, you know, I could defend civil rights and I could be up for all good things. And it looked, I just, you know, it was around the... Um, 
it was, I suppose, in the period, um, if you think of the age I am, it was sort of after the president, uh, Kennedy, had been shot. And in this, it was almost like the Camelot period in Irish. So I was going to be that. But in fact, I became something completely different. different but yeah, it was, seemed like a plan at the time, you know. Well, lieutenant sounds like it. <laughs> oh, yeah, boss. Yeah, I was a very uh, bossy boots. come in your family where where were you born um first born my mother had me when she was a teenager um she was she would have been 17 to 18 she was in the last school uh, secondary school yeah yeah and i was born then in a very small village small by irish uh, south african standards but here it might be a big town it's about five thousand people um but our little corner of the village had very few uh, families but they had big plots of land and so okay. the school was quite small in that sense because it wasn't a lot of people around this school um very tiny um our classrooms there were only three so there would have been this whole um 12 year schooling mm. was divided into three different classrooms and ours was occupied by four different grades yeah. We had four teachers in that classroom, like you had two, we had yeah. four, um, and only they had books. We yeah. didn't have books, um, we, we, we couldn't read uh, books, We could. they taught us how to read, but we had no books to read. Yeah. Um, so very tiny uh, villages. The only thing I remember about it is that I didn't actually uh, like the place much. Because when when we grow up there, everybody tended to be moving away from the village, and so you watch people grow old, and then you ask, who, where is so and so? Like they moved to okay. a different uh, town, a city. Um, so everybody in that village wanted to grow up and live. Yeah, and that that probably made you sad. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it did. Um, it did because as I grew older, that was my desire too. Like. To get, want to get out of here. Um, like when I became uh, older, so when I left, I left. I was I left around 2001. Mm -hmm. um, moved to a city, but when I before I left, I was really incredibly frustrated with the place because if you stay, if you are a young man, you will either be working in the police. Mm. Um, if you're not lucky enough to get a job in the police, you are have to either be join the civil service or work for one of the government departments. There's a lot of corruption and nepotism, so you're not getting in if you don't know mm. anybody in there. So you're likely to be unemployed. And over 80% of the population by 2011, when the last time I was there, was unemployed. Okay. Um, so a lot of young people then would just live. And so you get frustrated and a lot of people mm. would be then addicted to either drugs or alcohol. Very rural place. Um, there isn't much, it's like, the only thing that keeps it going would be social grants yeah. for the elderly and for children. So as a person, when you grow up, you, you want to get out of there. Did you have many in family? In the family, we had a lot of people. There were, uh, it was quite a big family. My, I was raised by my grandparents because when my mother had me as a teen, she couldn't uh, look after me and... Um, she wanted to continue with uh, schooling, um, which didn't happen. She got married 
to somebody else, not my father. And so she left and went to live with her husband and I was left to live with my um, grandparents and they were looking after their own children, of course, and other uh, people. Generally in South Africa, they say two out of every three children mm. grow up in a household without their biological father or without their uh, biological... Some, uh, I don't know the actual stats on those who grow up without their biological parents, mm. but there is a significant number. And so I was one of them. I grew up in a household then with... Do you mind me asking you, how did that affect you? Um, it, it affects a lot because when you want... As a child, you need support from parents okay. and so... I got that support from my grandparents, but when my grandfather passed on in 1998, my grandmother had never worked. Yeah. So it was only grandpa who was working and providing for us. And so we suddenly found ourselves having to fend for ourselves. Yeah. And grandma and I struggled quite a lot. Um, because I remember when we were growing up, before I went to school in the morning, I would have to wake up and go fetch water. Mm. She would use that water to plant uh vegetables that were not in season then she could sell it and make a living mm. out of it um so would fetch water every day in the morning uh, i i had uh, another brother that he was raising not my biological brother but uh, another young man who was who, uh, was raised by my grandma as well um we would do that together and go fetch water in the morning and after school to help uh, sell fruit and veggies in the uh, in the taxi rank in the local town um and that's how we made a living but when Papa passed on that was it was very difficult like we had never had to think about where to get food um, we suddenly had to think about yeah. that um, and for a child to be worried about where yeah. your next meal is coming from yeah. um, it's not very easy. Did it make you grow up very fast? It did, it did. Um, I remember I even quit school several times I would have quit school I think I mm. wrote a piece a long time ago but it was deleted by the <laughs> blog mm. platform that I wrote it for I did a count of how many times I had um, dropped out of school mm. and it was over eight times that I could mm. remember dropping mm. out of school and not going to school at all and just focusing on getting the Surviving. next Surviving, yeah. yeah. Um, so that was a bit, that uh, was very difficult and um, by my teens, by 17 I was still in the seventh grade. You said that because you eventually went. So to, many times, oh, yeah. 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 And you, but you said when you when you you went you eventually did go uh, leave and go to the city. Did you go with sibling siblings or with family or did you go no, on your? No, that's own? when I uh, reunited with my biological mother in two thousand and first time I remember ever living with her. Um, it didn't even last that long. Um, two thousand and one, I would have moved to Cape mm. Town. Um, mm. That's where I lived with uh, my biological mother and then my um, siblings. She had a son and daughter from her marriage mm. um, and then we lived together and it was not a very pleasant experience because they had a very different life to the one I had. Mm. Um, so I started comparing myself to them. Um, we came, we were born from the same woman, but they had shoes to school. I never had shoes to school. Like, mm -hmm. um, they had transport to get to school. I had to walk to school. Yeah. Um, did you they, feel very hurt by boxes. that? Yeah, yeah. So they had lunch boxes. They had everything that I didn't have. Mm. Um, and now suddenly I have to see that. Mm. Um, it was very... Um, what age were you just when that happened? 16. Yeah. When I moved to Cape Town, I would have been... 16 or 15? Yeah. Around did there. it kind of make you angry or did you? A lot of resentment. Yeah. Um, 
there was a lot of resentment between me and my mother, my biological mother and my siblings. Our relationship has never been very um, typical mother and yeah. child relationship. Um, we do speak now, but very like, the last time I spoke to her was on her birthday last year. Okay, it's hard. Um, in September, so it's very, um, I'm much more closer to my grandmother than I, I am with yeah. her. Um, it was very difficult. Like when I remember when my siblings had um, school camps, um, they went to a former white-only school. So you have different schooling system in South Africa is very yeah. different. So you get one for middle-class people, one for somewhere in the middle, and then you get one for working-class people, which are the public uh, schools that are no fee, they don't charge any fees. And then they went to an independent school that charges fees thousands of South African rents. My mother worked and then she made sure that most of the income went to provide for their education and they would, ha they would have their needs. One day they had a, um, a school camp to prepare for and we went out shopping for the school. So when I was looking at the things that we were buying, I was like, I never got any of this. Like, mm. um, and so things like that got to me. Like every day we'd go, she would prepare school lunch for them. It's like, Every evening before she goes to bed, she prepares school lunch. Was like, there were days when I had to only drink water mm. because there was no food. Like, mm -hmm. um, and I had a mother and a father both living mm. somewhere in, it, uh, in South Africa, not in the same place I was in. So um, it was very hard. Um, when you um, went, on, when you left, did you go on to education a different school then? I I did. I went to. It was at Lobo Public Primary and from there I went to a secondary school for when I was in Cape Town. So mm. I would have changed uh, schools in Cape Town. From secondary school I left at the ninth grade. I had an upset, I was bullied in the, in the school because of my sexual orientation. So mm. I, as I became of age and started learning about my sexuality and mm. of course I would have uh, dated boys. Um, mm. I looked effeminate and people say this, I never looked at myself in that way, but apparently I did because I noticed I used to have long relaxed uh, hair, straightened hair. Uh, normally black people have curly hair, but mine were straightened because I used to put in chemicals on mm. it to, to straighten. Um, and I had long nails and so, so very effeminate. And when I went to school in the secondary school, the principal had a problem with that. But he couldn't, he didn't know how to approach that. And so I was bullied once. And I missed school for, after the bullying incident, I missed school for how many days? Almost a week. And then I went, I think the incident would have happened on a Tuesday, and I went back to school the following Monday. Um, and when I went to school, the principal wanted to speak to me. I, took, I thought he was going to speak to me about the bullying incident, because everybody in the school mm. knew what had happened. Mm. Um, but he wanted to talk about my hair. Oh, God. <laughs> how did you feel about that? That must have been that, that was horrible. Uh, difficult because I didn't even know how to respond to him because mm. one, I'm called to the principal's office. I thought we were here to talk about what did I, what had happened to me. I was tripped on the school floor. The boy was challenging me to fight with him because mm. I'm an effeminate man. So I didn't fight. Normally, other boys, if somebody challenges you to a duel, you fight back. I didn't. I got up, dusted myself and walked and they kept mocking me and saying all nasty things about my sexuality or being girly. And so I didn't want to go back there. Um, I, when I did go, when I finally go back and I was like, oh, I want to talk about my hair. Is the hair the symbol of the bigger problem because you're gay or is the hair in itself an issue? And I mean by hair as a 
parents. They do police here, yeah. yeah. From childhood, they would police for. There was a protest for a young girl who, um, who had a, led a protest against uh, her school uh, policy. So institutions tend to police her. Um, so if you are black, you're expected to have your hair like this. Mm. Um, you can't have it all afro and things. And so her hair was quite big. Yeah. And the principal um, didn't like that. She, they wanted her to tie it up mm. or straighten it. And her hair was curly. She refused. That's it. I'm not going to do that. He transferred me then to another school, um, an adult-based uh, education centre. Um, I'm hearing that you're kind of saying yeah. that you've had a very interrupted education. Yeah, it yeah. was um, quite a lot, even but in the centre still. But you, have a, you obviously have a great desire to... Yeah. I, I did. Um, I had lots of dreams, like I wanted to be a doctor. I convinced my grandpa to sell all his livestock when I grow old and send me to medical school. <laughs> um, so I had, I had uh, a lot of dreams that needed an education. from school had the most impact on you? Oh, I was, I was blessed. Um, when I went to secondary school, I very quickly came uh, under the influence of this amazing woman called uh, Beatrice Ryan. And um, Beatrice was um, just quite an amazing person because she, first and foremost, she she was an intellectual and she was a woman she never married um but she was just a person who had the most exquisite sensibilities and absolutely um had a sense of the power of education and the power of reading um she was she was both a french teacher and an english teacher but she took an enormous interest in me and gave me so much. I mean, when I was 13, um, she brought me, uh, handed me a book which she'd bought for me on pluralism by um, a philosopher called Marshall McLuhan. I mean, it, it, when I look back on it, it was, it was so, you know, I, I, I read that book and I read it again and again because I, it, it, it was both intellectually stimulating, but I wanted to please her so much. Um, and she, she was, um, she, well, she did a number of things. Firstly, um, she ensured that I got an awful lot of extracurricular support to do an entrance scholarship to UCD. Um, and because I would have been the first person in my family to go to third level education. And so there was the two things going on. I, I mean, you know, it was the fact that we had the secondary free, free education had allowed that much to happen. But so she she really supported me. But she was she was a, she was a very spiritual person, and um, actually teetotaling at that time. But she invited myself and a friend to her flat in Ballsbridge when we were about seventeen, and we had this lunch, and it was like 
it was it was like something out of one of those classic um sort of english books i don't know um you know i don't know like a bronte or something but we she she gave us a glass of wine you know and it was just amazing i felt like a lady and she had such it's because it was kind of like it it was like almost like as if she was responding to all the parts of a person like the kind of the you as a female um you as a, a, aspiring intellectual with hopes you know um and also kind of it was somebody who had a vision of what you could be and that you know you didn't just have to go That's into right. not disparaging the civil service or any other job oh, but yeah. that the, the, there was you know that there was other things you could do and she just gave tremendous support um and so she really did have a profound influence on me and we, like we've stayed in in touch she tragically died at 90 still in her boots as they say last year but she had we were friends and she just had a, a huge impact on my life you know uh, i grew up thinking that i hated my favorite teacher but i look back now and i, I think i actually <laughs> liked her she used to fetch me from home she yeah. walked past my home and i hated going to school because i didn't have shoes and especially in winter and it was like she would fetch me every day from school and I, the sight of her start crying from when I see her. Yeah. But you look back differently now. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, it's so. funny um, you say about that. I would have been, um, because of my family situation, and, and, my, I, and one of my friends um, in school uh, that also uh, my Beatrice kind of really wanted to support came from a better family, and um, better family in terms of um, goods, material goods. But it it was interesting because they there was a suggestion that it was a bad idea. So, th uh -huh. they, th us being together because I was I would only what was it they thought I would only be upset by seeing their wealth. So oh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I I I can really empathise with what you're saying. Obviously, uh -huh. I had shoes, but um, actually they did have holes in them. The, the, our house flooded once, and I watched my only pair of school shoes <laughs> running. <laughs> and we opened the door. Did you run after the, them? I ran after <laughs> the shoes, and but unfortunately they sank. <laughs> Because <laughs> they had a big, so I can empathise. Obviously, I wouldn't for a minute suggest that, that I had as much hardship, but yeah, she was a really important influence on my life. Yeah. And what was your first job then? Uh, right, the first. Now, would this be the first? The first first job. first job. Oh, ever. sorry. My, uh, my dad was a hairdresser, so I was. Um, I was at a very early age doing uh, sweeping up in this in his uh, hairdressing salon, and then I moved on to I. I got very good at you talked about hair right okay. i'm fa i'm quite fascinated by hair because um one of the things that would have been really popular um when i was growing up was if any girl was going to a dance whatever it was all quite complicated yeah. up styles and pins <laughs> and curls and you know and i got quite good at this like you know i mean but i this was completely self-taught you know yeah. so um yeah I mean, and, and it was kind of an identity thing too yeah. you know yeah. So, but that was more enjoyable than some of the more drudgery work that I had to do. But I remember when I met my future husband, he couldn't believe that I just didn't seem to have any spare time. But the, I didn't have spare time because we had to just help, you know. So I, my my weekends and, and you know Friday evenings and that would have been in the in the hairdressing salon doing uh, doing my bit to keep uh, the boat the show on the road or the boat on the whatever metaphor you like. <laughs> So, and yeah. what is the most satisfying then work that you've ever had to do? Like? Ultimately, 
I, I, I have to say, because I've done a couple of different jobs in, in my, and roles, uh, ultimately I do feel that teaching is what I have um, got most out of. I did enjoy really in a in a in a in a in a, com a completely different time i was i was a did a bit of investigative journalism and i was i worked as a journalist both for radio and um television and papers and whatever and i really and, and also making programs i did i really enjoyed particularly where we were exploring um difficult issues or you know basically uh, investigative type of journalism but mm. in the end I kind of realized that if you really want to leave a mark and mm. and, and do something you're you, you, education's a good place to start, to start you know yeah, yeah. you get you get to you get you get to help people yeah. you get to help people Game achieve their best yeah. selves yeah. Yeah. you know What were the factors that led you to, to leave and come to Ireland? Uh, homophobia and violence targeted to gay people in the country. The young lady who lived um, down the road from where I lived had been abducted and murdered and she was killed for no other reason but her sexual orientation. She was shot dead. Her partner survived because she hid under, uh, was it under a bed or in the closet, but she hid somewhere in the house. That's why they didn't get to her. Um, before that I would have gone through a lot, like I uh, would have had stones thrown at me because of my sexual interest. I was walking with my boyfriend one day and we were walking from the theatre, from uh, watching a film, we were walking home on the rail tracks and boys started throwing stones at us and of course we had to walk fast and run. Um, and that was scary because we've had people, um, gay people, who have been stoned to death. Um, but it was after her death that you decided? That I decided that's it. I'm not going back. And you uh, sought asylum in Ireland? Yeah. yeah, in 2017. Yeah. It's a long road. It's about to get longer in direct provision. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of just to, to some of the kind of issues that we, we, we talked about, um, as a sort of central structure for our conversation, mm. um, after all of that, What's your philosophy of life? I mean, what, 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 given the turbulence that you've experienced, what gives you meaning? The idea that I can do something to change my circumstances has always um, guided me. Like, if I wake up tomorrow and I have a job, that's great, like, mm. because then I can provide for my needs. Mm. Um, that's what drives me, like, I want to be able to do that. When I um, I had started, um, when I was working and studying, mm. at the same time I was able to pay my bills. I was mm. able to buy myself all the things that mm. I wanted. I had a social life, vibrant social life. Mm. Like if you invited me to a party, I would go and get a new outfit. I mm. um, wouldn't be showing up to a party in an outfit mm. that I had wanted a different party. Um, so I had a life, like, um, I, I had dreams, like things to mm. do. Like every day I would wake up. When I worked, I would wake up every day. I knew what I would do when I get mm. to work. Like, if I have a phone calls, I would.
important if i have people to call i would, put, I would write down a list of people to call and times to call them i would have emails that i need to reply to i knew exactly like if i got home after work i knew exactly what the next day looks like at work what's the first things i would mm. do what were my priorities so i knew what academic journal i'm going to have to read next mm. for my phd i knew what uh, I would need to look uh, look for like if I went to UCD, I knew in the library I had access to the library after graduation, so I knew exactly where I would sit in the library. I knew which quiet spot. Do you like order? <laughs> You're <Yes>. organized. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. I knew exactly where I would sit in the library. So how how do you reconcile that with the turbulence you've experienced? I mean, ah, uh, chaos. Maybe that's why I like order because I do yeah. want to live in a yeah. very. Um, and what is your priority now, this this at this moment? My priority now is getting out of direct provision, hopefully campaigning to end direct provision. That's mm -hmm. what I go around into now. I travel around the country a lot. Um, this week, only on Sunday that I'm not travelling anywhere. Good. Yeah. So. And um, do you feel comfortable in? And when I say in your skin, I mean in your skin as. Uh, uh, in, in terms of expression of your own sexuality in this country, or is that still a problem? It's it's different because when I lived outside of direct provision as a student, it was mm. really nice and comfortable. Like I would walk around the city, mm. um, could go out and do mm. all the things that I wanted to do, um, until you get people staring at you. I started dating um, an Italian man, and clearly he's not black. Handsome couple, I'd say, though. Italian <laughs> <laughs> so, boys. Hello, walking uh, from yeah. Houston Station, um, he would normally get uh, the loose mm. into town and then go to work in Blackrock. I mm. would get a bus from there to Maynooth to mm. go to work. Uh, people used to stare at us. For mm. me, that's scary. It yes. scares me when people stare. And if somebody's staring at you in Johannesburg, they are either going to rob, rape, or kill you. Mm. So when people stare at you, that's yeah. that's scary for me. Nobody likes me where, nobody yeah. likes being stared um, at because I don't know what they're thinking. Mm. Um, but then, before that, it was like it was grand. Mm. Uh, before getting mm. into direct provision, it was okay. But in direct provision, you can't live as in like. Even if you are not a homosexual, you just can't have a normal life. Of course, yeah. Now, when you are a homosexual, you can't have. A normal life, and you can't have a sexual like, like you can't express your sexuality. Yeah, because like, you have no privacy. You, exactly. Like I lived in a room where I had to share a bedroom with a homophobic man. My first roommate in Nogleshin, when he learned that I'm gay, he's like, "I don't like that shit." Okay. And we still had to share a bedroom. Yeah. Um, and when I was queuing for food in the canteen, I had homophobic slurs from other people yeah. in the center. Stark. And mm. I have to go in queue. Mm. For food, I'm mm. not allowed to cook. I have no access to self-catering mm. so I have to go and share that space again, and so that becomes very difficult then. What gives meaning then for life? Back to the philosophical questions. What gives meaning, meaning life, yeah. is the well-being of those around you the um I, I think a feeling that that you are that you're living your life as best as you can and that you are doing the best that you can 
and maybe if, if others don't like it, that's their problem, not your problem, but that you're true to yourself. Yeah. That gives meaning to me. Yeah. Do you play the lottery at all? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do occasionally. Yeah. And what would you do if you won? Oh, the, the lotto. Okay, the lotto. <laughs> well, I'd sort of go around the place giving deposits to people for houses or apartments <laughs> or, you know, but uh, uh, but what would I do for myself? Oh, I don't know. I I kind of am fairly happy with my lot, you know, um, and I've done a lot in my life, so I wouldn't be running out... Um, yeah, I wouldn't be running out sort of... I wouldn't be looking to buy a better car or and I like you know a sports car yeah yeah but I certainly uh you know I'm not going to pretend I'm not vain you know I might get some really <laughs> serious work done on my you know some really good hat some nail jobs or you know maybe a yeah. slightly better eyebrows and yeah <laughs> Well, money does change your choices and you stop yeah. going to the store and you go, mm, maybe I'll have mm. that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, or yeah. maybe ask somebody if they could possibly turn back the clock on my body, I don't know. But <laughs> no, yeah. I think, you know, I think the honest answer to anyone who gets money is they have to give some of it away if they don't, because yeah. otherwise they're going to end up unhappy. Yeah. yeah, that might cause them a lot of stress yeah, it, thinking it, about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's my my experience of. Can I ask you the same question? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what What would you do if you won the lotto? What would I do? I well, I'm involved with a lot of uh, activism, so I'd probably do more. Yeah. Um, for me, what what stresses me out the most is seeing how other people around me stress. That's why I go around and campaign against it. Like I could still get. I like if I got a letter tomorrow saying that I'm a refugee or something I have a right to stay in Ireland mm. I could it would be so easy to just go on with my life and forget mm. about um, everything else but seeing people in um, in the centers who having their dreams dashed like there are people who've been there for seven ten yeah. years mm. um, they're never gonna get that time back mm. um, so if I could do something to change their lives in any way then I probably would spend most of that money mm. yeah. What's your big dream at the moment? My dreams evolve quite a lot. <laughs> uh, they change quite a lot. I don't know if I have the biggest dream right now, but right now I'm mostly focused on either getting my studies done and then more work, mm. more advocacy work. Um, I haven't actually sat down and thought about dreaming. In, it's very hard to dream in Trekrof because you don't know how long you're going to be there. Um, so I haven't actually thought about what it is that I want to do post uh, getting my PhD, but I always will, I will always be involved in advocacy work. Mm. Uh, what makes you happiest? What makes me the happiest? Ooh, that's a lot. The most happiest moments in my life would have been either spent with my grandma or with my friends. Those with their happiest moments. Mm. I can't remember being happy without either friends or my grandma. I don't mm. remember a moment in my childhood, like, or even as an adult, mm. um, where I was happy and I wasn't with around my friends. Like, mm. um, even when I, before I came here, I was sitting with my friends and we were making plans. Who, mm. Friends who also wanted out, like, who wanted. Um, 
to study um to further the uh, academics like one of them got, uh, completed her she wrote to me last before the end of last year she completed her phd in portugal she was studying in portugal and she was i was very she was very excited when she defended her thesis and they told her that you are now a doctor in yeah. <laughs> yeah. um so all the all my dreams like i would share with my friends and mm. we plan together and so that's the happiest moments what's the kind of the really important thing for you in terms of your uh, your understanding of your own life the most important one. the one thing i know for sure Oprah's, Oprah Winfrey says what i what do i know for sure the one thing i know for sure is that i can alter the course of my life um and so it's very frustrating to be in a direct provision center where i cannot do that mm. so that's that that ability to shape uh, major aspects of my life um, has kept me going for many many years like i i've been through quite a lot even from being a kid not knowing when my next meal is going to come from to days when i actually have enough um, work i've been able to provide mm. for myself and have enough to live on and can actually support others. I used to live with my siblings mm. when my uh, biological mother left, uh, she got married again. Um, they were still in high school like, um, and I lived with my little brother and my little sister and I used to provide her. So I'm most satisfied like, um, when I'm well and they're well, when mm. people around me are well. And what about now? What makes you... Uh, uh, what? Now, that's a very difficult one. <laughs> um, knowing that I can uh, go, go around and uh, get people to sit back and think about how Ireland uh, treats asylum seekers in, uh, in the country gives me a great sense of satisfaction that I have... Like the people I meet, um, whether it be in Cork or Galway mm. or in Dublin or in a very small town in or, uh, County Wexford, um, would have never have had anybody from direct provision speaking about the things mm. I speak to them about. They would have never encountered. Some of them don't even know about direct provision. So mm. when they hear their experiences and they see a person who lives in a direct provision center. Sometimes they would have read about um, direct provision but they wouldn't know much about it. And so when you speak to them and you see their their eyes being open like, oh, this is what's, what's going on mm -hmm. and you see the agency to change it, that mm -hmm. motivates me. Like, sheepish about the reason I had paired them, I nonetheless asked Bulalani and Jack to reflect on what they felt they had in common and to open the envelope revealing what I had written down. Well, I think we're both fighters. We're kind of slightly both, to say the least, anti-system people. Does that make sense? Um, I think we both feel passionate about... Um, What's right and wrong, I oh. guess. I'm probably quite off the mark here, but uh, what, what do you think? I think we probably passion for education because yeah. I remember even no matter how hard life was, I always had the desire to go to school. Like, mm. um, 
and when you, you talked about um, your passion for teaching, mm. and um, it was like, well, that's something other than that. Mental the world to yeah. me, get, yeah. getting an education. Yeah. 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 Um, what else? <laughs> no, I'm saying <laughs> you, you want to see the envelope? <laughs> Then go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put my glasses on. We've both studied politics in UCD. You uh, both approached doing a PhD, <laughs> having first spent time living and working in the real world. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's all true. It's all true. Seekers are usually defined in public narrative and in our understanding of them by their stories of persecution and what they are fleeing from. With this podcast, I wanted to provide them with a chance to be their full selves as complex and complete human beings. But in listening to Bulalani's story, I realized that the fact that they are asylum seekers could not be excised from the story. Bulalani is here not only because he has been persecuted as a gay man, it is also because, in his words, he is someone for whom the idea that I can change my circumstances has always guided me. There were 5,660 asylum seekers in Ireland at the end of 2018, who are all people who have acted on this belief and sought refuge from persecution and war. Most are living in direct provision, which, as Bolalani says, takes away their ability to shape their lives to the point of not being able to make themselves a cup of tea. In taking away their agency, we are cutting to the core of who they are. Bulalani has been living in direct provision for two years. He is a member of MASI, the Movement of Asylum Seekers of Ireland, who campaigned for the end of direct provision and for justice, freedom and dignity for all asylum seekers. To find out more, visit their website. This podcast was funded by the Equality Fund at Trinity College Dublin. It was produced by Michelle Darcy and the assistant producer is Iman Aboud. Thanks to all the participants and to Gizem Arakan, Clara Chan, Kay Michael, Cahal and Matthew Darcy, Claire Devlin, Olive Donnelly, Neve Hardiman, Jacqueline Hayden, Lisa Keenan, Liam Neefsey, Andy Pollock, Sorsha Pollock, Michelle Redmond, Peter Stone and Heidi Wankading. The graphic design is by Clara Chan and the music is by Macrophone. Thank you so much for listening.